ночной шли вдвоем, а фонарики горели. И прибитие их на момент прийти, и сердца наши замляли. Hello and welcome to the SRB podcast, where in each episode we discuss Eurasian politics, culture and history. As always, I'm your host, Sean Guillory. The SRB podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh, and members of the SRB Table of Ranks, who give monthly contributions from anywhere between $5 to $25. If you'd like to support the podcast, go to my Patreon page at patreon.com slash Sean's Russia blog, or to the podcast website, seansrussiablog.org, and hit the Patreon button and join the Table of Ranks. This week's guest, Vladimir Kozlov, came of age in the working-class suburbs of Mogilev, a provincial city about 200 kilometers east of Minsk in the final years of the Belarusian Soviet Socialist Republic. Perestroika opened a new world to him. He discovered punk rock, an underground culture, which forged within him a do-it-yourself ethos. The experience of escaping the suffocation of late Soviet life, but also the disorientation that followed, made indelible marks that shaped Kozlov as a novelist and filmmaker. So how does Perestroika look from Mogilev, and how does Kozlov narrate those experiences in his stories and films? Vladimir Kozlov is a novelist and filmmaker. He's written over a dozen fiction and nonfiction books, and was the winner of the Maiden Russian Award for Literature in 2013, and nominated for GQ Russia's Writer of the Year in 2011 and 2012. His most recent books translated into English are USSR, Diary of a Perestroika Kid, and 1987 and Other Stories. He's also the director of several films, including Traces in the Snow, a groundbreaking documentary about the influential Siberian punk movement of the 1980s. I've put links to Kozlov's YouTube channel on the podcast website so you can watch his films. Here's Vladimir Kozlov. I, I thought we'd, we'd start by just having you uh, tell us a bit about yourself. What, what's your background and, and, and what, do you, what kind of art you do and what are you involved in in, in in your artistic work? I was born in 1972 in Mogilev, which at the time was part of the Belarusian uh, Soviet Socialist Republic. And I grew up in one of the worst uh, neighborhoods of the city, honestly. And I experienced a lot of uh, things that uh, were not so, so good, but it gave me some material to work with later when I began writing fiction and making films. I escaped uh, Mogilev uh, when I was 20 years old. I moved to Minsk, to the capital of uh, Belarus. At that time, it already was uh, uh, an independent uh, republic of Belarus. I went to university there. And uh, then in 2000, I moved to Moscow. And shortly before that, I began writing short stories, and uh, in 2000, uh, 2002, between those two years, I wrote several short stories and a novella, 
which uh, later became my first book, which was published in 2002. The Russian title is Gopniki, and uh, the the best English uh, translation I could come up with is hoodlums. Uh, Yeah. Since then, uh, I've published... uh, about a dozen books of mostly fiction, but uh, uh, a couple of uh, non-fiction books as well. Uh, my books uh, have come out in Russia and also in translation in France, uh, the United States, and Serbia. And a few years ago, I also discovered uh, independent, ultra-low-budget guerrilla-style filmmaking, and I've made uh, four uh, features and uh, one documentary. So you're very uh, have an eclectic both in writing and most recently in film. It's it's really interesting. We'll get into some of that. But first, I want to turn to you said that you grew up in one of the worst neighborhoods in Mogilev. So I wanted to have you talk about you know your experience. What was so bad about this area, and how does it influ- really how does it influence your your writing? And, and your how you approach your write your short stories I think it influenced me a lot uh, and uh, my first two books um, were basically focused almost entirely on those uh, experiences were uh, inspired by those experiences uh, the neighborhood was bad I mean, there was a lot of crime, a lot of alcohol abuse, a lot of domestic violence. Uh, My family was good, uh, but uh, because of that uh, bizarre mixture that was was always uh, there in the Soviet era, there was no division uh, between like good neighborhoods in which good families lived and bad neighborhoods for sort of bad families. No, everything was mixed. Everyone lived in the same neighborhoods. And so, and also what I also experienced and what also had, I think, a very, a very serious impact on my future writing was that hypocrisy. Like, in school, we were told about uh, uh, what uh, uh, what a great country we were living in. We were told about uh, building uh, a communist system, and uh, but in fact, all you had to do was just look out the window. And you saw all those uh, drunks and petty criminals, and uh, all uh, that uh, squalor. And uh, it was clear, not not just to me, it was clear to everyone else around me that uh, it was all uh, it was all just bullshit. Uh, it was uh, uh, it was hypocrisy. Uh, the country was moving nowhere. So it it really had uh, uh, it really had uh, a lot of impact on my uh, on my future writing and uh, probably to some extent on the way I approached uh, films and because um, uh, those uh, childhood experiences 
those experiences uh, from my teenage years, they are still with me. And uh, a lot of what I've written uh, is actually based on those uh, experiences. Yeah, from reading some of the, the short stories that you've published, you, you seem to, your focus is on this um, kind of everyday life of the average person. And so what are you trying to tell about, like through those characters and through your experiences? What is the, what is the life that you're trying to show your readers? I try to actually explore several ideas. One of the ideas uh, is uh, the life of someone who is uh, totally disorientated uh, because of what's happening around him or her, because of all that uh, hypocrisy, which was uh, part uh, of uh, the everyday life uh, in the Soviet era, or something uh, similar, which we experience in contemporary Russia, in Putin's Russia, with all that uh, state uh, propaganda, which uh, really sends a very bizarre conflicting messages. So it's uh, uh, in fiction, uh, I focused uh, a lot about, uh, about, I focused a lot on the past, on the 1980s and the, uh, the 1990s, but uh, my films, uh, to some extent, uh, because they are low, uh, they are low budget films, and I can't really recreate the past. They are focused on uh, on uh, this reality in which I live, and I really try to explore uh, how uh, society, how uh, the environment, has an impact on young people and uh, how they are trying to uh, to live to go on with their life being uh, disorientated and confused i think this is one of the um, most important uh, themes uh, for me yeah it it is a it is an interesting i mean it's it this idea of disorientation is is one that is really interesting to me too not just in terms of say the image one gets of where you live from the media and how it is completely different than one's everyday life. But also in, in your writing, you're focusing on, you know, the 1980s and into the 1990s, which is a very disorientating period. Um, just for example, you know, you just recently published an English translation of short stories titled 1987 and other stories. And you know, I, I was struck by the, the title of 1987. So what is the importance of that year for this collection of short stories that you have? Uh, 1987 is also the title of one of the short stories in that collection, which is uh, set predictably that year. And uh, it, it is set in Mogilev, uh, the city where I grew up, and it's centered on two teenagers, a boy who is to some extent my alter ego, and a girl. They uh, got hold uh, of a record by the Sex Pistols, and they tried to 
to become punks in an in an environment uh, that is extremely hostile to punks or to any other uh, subcultures. And uh, speaking more broadly, 1987 is a year when I first uh, began to experience uh, the impact of reforms in the Soviet Union, the so-called uh, perestroika reforms initiated uh, by uh, then-Soviet leader Mikhail Gorbachev. I first uh, felt uh, that something was changing, and the very fact that records uh, by the Sex Pistols uh, were made available, not, uh, of course, not original LPs, uh, but uh, tape copies of those records, uh, at least uh, they were available. To me, it's uh, uh, some, kind, uh, some kind of a sign, uh, some, uh, some testimony to, uh, uh, to the fact uh, that something uh, uh, was already changing in the country at that time. So 1987 is uh, quite a crucial year for me, and so actually is uh, the previous year, uh, 1986. But uh, this uh, this specific story, which gave name to, to the entire collection, is set in 19, 1987. You, you know, it's, it's interesting that now that when I think about, you know, some of the things you're saying now, but also uh, your films, which we'll get to, but, you know, just focusing on your stories and your own personal life in the sense that you grew up in a provincial city in Belarus, which is a provincial uh, Republic of the Soviet Union, right? Most of our focus tends to be on Moscow or St. Petersburg slash Leningrad. Um, so what what is this peripheral perspective, do you think, gives, say, your descriptions and your experiences, your own personal experiences of perestroika and the reforms and discovering things like the Sex Pistols? I think... In bigger cities, especially in Moscow or St. Petersburg, they were exposed to things like that a little bit earlier. Uh, that's uh, what, uh, what I learned uh, later, of course, uh, when I already lived in, uh, in Russia. I realized uh, that uh, people... Um, listened uh, to some Sex Pistols records uh, probably in the early 1980s or even in the late 1970s. But in a provincial city like Mogilev, in which I grew up, it was uh, it was totally different. Uh, I didn't I didn't uh, meet anyone with uh, this kind of cultural interests until I was uh, maybe 17 or 18 years old, I was surrounded by people who were kind of square, who uh, whose uh, tastes in music or uh, films uh, were very limited. And I was uh, kind of struggling in that environment. I was... Um, uh, it was kind of suffocating. And then when Perestroika began, at least uh, uh, there was something to 
uh, to read in the newspapers something uh, that you could uh, watch on TV, like the first uh, shows of that era that uh, tried to portray the Soviet reality in a more objective, realistic way. And there was also uh, some cultural stuff like bands uh, that used to be underground and they uh, they were getting access to television and radio so it was it was kind of harsh uh growing up uh, there and being isolated uh, from a lot of things that people of my age had access to in uh, bigger cities even in Minsk, uh, the capital of the Belarusian Soviet Socialist Republic. So it was uh, those really small, tiny things that you could get a hold uh, of. And of course, you tried uh, to, uh, they were they were really precious. You you tried to uh, uh, you you learned to really appreciate it, like every. Uh, every good record by some underground band, by some local, I mean, a Soviet band that uh, that was made available to you. It was it was really hard to get it, and uh, when you finally was able to uh, to get it, it was it was really something. It's not uh, like it is these days when everything is available online and you can get pretty much any music with a couple of clicks. That's uh, that's totally different. The fact that the, these the you know reforms and the access to more different things that come with Perestroika is more profound, say in uh, you know Mogilev where you grew up. Does that make that experience, and, and this is, I'm asking you to think back to your experience and, and in your stories too, is does that make that experience more disorientating? I think uh, to, uh, to some extent it was so, because uh, mostly I was, uh, I was in a situation when uh, I, I really strived to get that new culture, that new music and stuff. And people around me were totally, either totally ignorant about it or not interested. And it felt, especially when you are a teenager and when your tastes are different uh, from those of the majority of uh, people around you, uh, people you go to school with, uh, people you live in the same neighborhood, it's, uh, it's uh, disorientating. And it's, uh, it's, also, uh, uh, it's also kind of harsh on you. Uh, there is uh, this uh, uh, this. Uh, Kind of uh, a kind of conflict uh, between uh, between on the one hand wanting to to get something different uh, from what most people around you want, and on the other hand uh, from actually wanting to belong uh, to be part of that uh, 
of that uh, group of uh, people around you. So it was uh, it was uh, kind of an, a strange experience uh, for me, and uh, it wasn't uh, it wasn't exactly pleasant because I felt uh, like an outcast with all my tastes and interests, especially. Um, especially in my final grades in the secondary school i didn't really i didn't really have people around me to uh with uh, whom i could uh, i could discuss all those uh cultural things new music and new films and books especially books because people around me they just didn't read books how how does this experience shape you as a a writer in Moscow. Does this experience coming from Belarus, is it part of your identity as a writer in Moscow? Like, how do you fit into, say, the Moscovite writing scene? I think uh, this is one of the reasons I still am an outsider. I don't, I don't exactly uh, fit in uh, with uh, Moscow's uh, writing uh, circles. Uh, I mean, uh, of course, this is how arts uh, work in general. You have to uh, to belong to some uh, to some clique, to some circle of people, to some group. But uh, by the time I I moved to, to Moscow, by the time I. Uh, I began to publish uh, my writing. I already had this uh, kind of an outsider mentality. I didn't really, uh, I didn't really want to fit in with uh, people who were probably good and interesting, but uh, uh, but I didn't exactly ha- have a lot in common with. And uh, by then I was already like uh, 30 years old. I was a grown-up person. I was no longer a teenager who is uh, desperate uh, to be uh, to fit in to be part of some group. I didn't really I didn't really care. And of course, uh, to some extent it, it hurts me uh, in terms of um, in terms of my writing career because if uh, if I were part of some um, uh, some clique, some uh, group, probably I would uh, I would be able to publish more books, to publish books with uh, bigger publishers. But it's to on the other hand, it kind of contradicts uh, my underground mentality. Uh, my outsider mentality. So uh, at this point, uh, I'd rather I'd rather do what uh, what I want to do in terms of writing uh, and uh, making films. Uh, I'd rather do do what I'm doing than uh, try to uh, to do something different, something I don't really want to do uh, for this just for the sake of uh, being uh, more successful, uh, being more uh, more accepted in those uh, created circles. You, you know, it's it's interesting because in you know I I as you know I just uh, screened your film Traces in the Snow at the, at the University of Pittsburgh this week and. 
you know, now that I'm thinking about what you're saying and your the film, in a way you're telling your story of Siberian punk and the and the rise of that scene is very much a similar type of story in the sense of you know, here you have the, the punk coming up in, you know, Siberia, which is far from any central part of of the Soviet Union at the time. And one of the things that's really striking about this punk movement is, one, they're very close, the participants of it. They're a very tight community, it seems. And then, of course, when things start opening up, they seem to reject this inclusion into a larger kind of, you know, national punk emerging underground music. Um, so I wanted to ask you... How did you get interested in the Siberian punk scene? Was it, was it, did, is this what attracted you to it or were there other things? This is uh, one of the things uh, that attracted me to it. Uh, that uh, kind of DIY uh, underground uh, mentality, which uh, was a part of that scene. And also uh, the general attitude about uh, about uh, the reality in which i lived i first uh, i first uh, had an opportunity to listen to siberian punk in 1990 i listened uh, to a record by grodanskaya oborona civil defense and i was struck with the how similar uh, that depiction uh, of the reality how similar it was uh, to uh, to how I understood and saw what was around me and the music itself uh, was very raw the quality of the record uh, wasn't great uh, and also uh, the the musicians uh, didn't care that much about technical proficiency uh, but all that uh, really worked all that um, uh, was really in in line with uh, what i saw around me and the trailer really, and the trailer really captivated me i really i really uh, understood that that was something I could relate to, uh, something uh, that uh, uh, that really resonated with me. And uh, I've listened uh, to um, Siberian punk uh, for all these years. It was an early influence on me to some extent, probably not in a very direct way because uh, uh, I I only played music for a very short period in uh, in my life, and it wasn't exactly too serious. So there was uh, there was probably more indirect uh, influence in terms of a general ideology of this uh, punk DIY ideology and uh, of that aesthetics of uh, minimalism and. Uh, uh, a sort of uh, uh, sort of attitude about about technical proficiency that I shared. To me, of course, minimalism 
is something that uh, I probably took uh, from punk rock. My writing is very minimalist, and it's not because I couldn't uh, couldn't write in a different way. I've tried uh, uh, different kinds of writing, but that was something I I even uh, I eventually decided uh, to go with uh, because it was uh, something that I thought was um, uh, most uh, adequate uh, for stories I wanted to tell. So. Uh, there was, uh, there were, uh, there was, and still is uh, quite, uh, uh, quite a lot of influence of uh, Siberian uh, punk rock on uh, on uh, my writing and on my films, and uh, also there is influence of uh, punk ideology in general. It's uh, something uh, that I still think is uh, very interesting and important and uh, of course uh, these days uh, uh, punk rock is no longer interesting it is uh, no longer rebellious it's uh, it's mostly co-opted but uh, there was still a time when it was truly rebellious when it was uh, uh, truly truly cool and uh, that uh, aesthetics and ideology influenced me. I-, I wanted to ask you about one of the musicians coming out of Siberia that really stands out in your film, uh, and that is uh, Yanka uh, Digileva. Digileva, yeah. Uh, and yeah, Digileva. Uh, and what really, st- I mean, a couple of things stand out to me for her because of her. One is she's the only female um, musician. That's that you feature in, in the documentary says the only one that there was in Siberia in the Siberian scene. Uh, and second, um, she also comes across as one that that has, <laughs> for the lack of a better word, you know, real musical talent, right? Like a music, a certain musical talent that isn't this necessarily this raw sound that you get out of Siberian punk. Uh, talk about her, who she was and, and what is her significance uh, to that se- that scene? Yes, absolutely. Yanka was uh, uh, one of the most uh, important personalities on that uh, Siberian punk scene. Actually, she was uh, much uh, bigger, I should say, than uh, punk rock or a Siberian punk rock. Uh, because, uh, first of all, uh, she was uh, a real poet. Uh, Her lyrics uh, really stood out uh, among uh, most of uh, what uh, Siberian punk rockers did and also uh, uh, what punk rockers uh, elsewhere in the Soviet Union uh, did uh, at the time. Uh, She kind of uh, combined that uh, Russian poetic tradition with uh, uh, some kind of uh, melodic talents and also with uh, uh, some rebellious attitudes. Because at the time uh, when when she lived, it was uh, uh, it 
uh, it was totally natural to be uh, to be rebellious uh, to hate this uh, this uh, communist system but in her lyrics it was um, it was uh, more subtle it uh, her songs uh, r- uh, were really really far from uh, propaganda from anti-soviet propaganda or something like that uh, those uh, songs were really intimate and uh, uh, spoke about things uh, that uh, that kind of transcended uh, the standard uh, punk rebellion of that time, and also, of course, uh, she is a very tragic figure. Uh, she was um, uh, she suffered uh, from um, from depressions uh, when she was still alive. And her death at the age of um, 24, of course, uh, was very tragic. And uh, there is still some kind of mystery associated with that death because uh, some people believe uh, she committed suicide because uh, she was suicidal and that... uh, that didn't really surprise anyone at the time, but um, uh, there is another idea that it was still an uh, an accident uh, that she just accidentally drowned, and uh, of course uh, that uh, uh, that mystery uh, surrounding her death makes her a really tragic uh, tragic figure and uh, makes her stand out among other people on on that uh, Siberian punk scene. Went out to to make your film and and, and interview these people who are uh, part of this Siberian punk scene. You know, now you're interviewing them much later in their lives. Um, How did they reflect on their experiences of their youth? You know, because in a, in a lot of ways, um, you're telling the stories of young people, but at the same time, you're also telling these stories through the eyes of adults. So, how did they regard their their youth and their time in this this punk scene in Siberia? Most of them looked at it as uh, as a really happy time. They didn't uh, they didn't focus much on uh, being harassed by authorities, by being harassed by police. Uh, and uh, they, uh, they actually were harassed uh, and uh, they had really bad experiences uh, from authorities at the time because what they were doing was underground and wasn't officially permitted. And, uh, and so they were suspicious but later, of course, uh, of the country was opening up, and their music was no longer considered hostile to the Soviet regime because no one cared any longer at the time. But uh, they didn't. Uh, they didn't focus on that aspect of what they they were doing. They focused on being young and rebellious and being some kind of a community which uh, 
which was uh, kind of unique as a community that uh, united the three Siberian cities, Novosibirsk, Tumen, and Omsk. And uh, they, um, for most of them, that was uh, probably the heyday of their career. If uh, if you could really speak about about a career uh, regarding uh, someone making underground uh, punk rock music, it was uh, it was an interesting time to live in, and uh, there was a lot of inspiration from what you saw around you. Of course, uh, there were all those bad things uh, that um, had an impact on what they were doing. Uh, but uh, I think, uh, I don't know if, uh, if, they, if that really came across in the documentary because uh, different people uh, said different things and I tried to accommodate uh, as much as possible to just uh, to give a viewer a general idea of what um, that scene was about but uh, i tried to to get that message across too that uh, those uh, people were were happy doing what they were doing at the time when they were young uh, they were uh, they uh, they were probably the most advanced uh, punk scene in the entire soviet union although they were based in in an unlikely place, uh, Siberia was uh, kind of an unlikely place uh, for punk rock. If you if you look at it, uh, most uh, most other punk bands uh, of the era were based in Leningrad or Moscow or the Baltic states uh, because they had more access to Western music, which had an impact on what they were doing. So that uh, that was kind of a kind of an interesting cultural uh, phenomenon, and uh, people like uh, Jan Kadyagileva and uh, Yegor Letov of uh, Civil Defense, they actually transcended uh, that scene as uh, as musicians and as uh, lyricists, and uh, they had. Uh, uh, they really had a huge impact in the late 1980s and early 1990s. Uh, a lot of people across the entire Soviet Union listened to their music, even though uh, there was no FM radio. Uh, their songs were never on TV uh, or anywhere else. Uh, all those uh, uh, all those uh, albums uh, were available, and some is that, but people still listened uh, to them, and it um, uh, it was like a nationwide uh, phenomenon. Has your film um, renewed any interest in in that punk scene now nowadays in, in the last couple of years? I hope so. To some extent, it did. Uh, like uh, some younger people who probably didn't know about that scene or didn't know much about it, they watched uh, the film and uh, that uh, probably pushed uh, them to 
uh, to find uh, some of those records uh, by Siberian punk acts. Uh, but uh, still, honestly, I think a lot of people who watched uh, the film, they already knew about um, about uh, uh, the Siberian punk rock scene and they had been listening to that music for uh, quite uh, uh, quite a long time. One of the reasons uh, for me to make this film was... Uh, to to make some kind of a tribute to that scene to those people because at the time I I set out to to make the documentary there hadn't been a single uh, film devoted to that scene and uh, I thought it was kind of a shame uh, I was probably probably I wasn't. Uh, of the best, uh, the best positioned person to make that film because uh, there were people associated with that scene, and I had no association with that scene whatsoever. I just approached uh, people. Well, I I did know some of the people uh, that I interviewed uh, for the film, but uh, uh, still, I was uh, kind of an outsider and. Um, I think that was uh, that was okay because it allowed me to uh, to make a kind of an objective documentary about those people about the scene uh, because since uh, 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 since uh, the nineteen eighties um, since uh, they had uh, that uh, community of punk musicians. Things uh, haven't uh, been uh, very great between some of them. Uh, there have been some feuds. There have been some conflicts between those people. Uh, so I didn't. I tried. I tried uh, to avoid uh, taking sides. I tried to be objective about about what they were saying, and I tried to uh, to tell a story from a neutral outsider's uh, point of view, and I hope it's, uh, it worked. I, I want to ask you about uh, uh, another one of your films uh, titled Koja, or, or translated in English, Skin. And in an interview I, I read uh, uh, that you gave about the film, you said that it's about the film, you said it's real life, real Russia, which the majority of today's films or a television series aren't. And I just wanted to have you talk more about that. You've already alluded to it in your earlier comments, but talk in the context of this film, Koja, how does it reflect real life, real Russia in your view? I think I could apply the same, uh, the same statement about uh, real life as opposed to what is... Uh, pictured in the most other Russian films and television series. I think I can apply it to all four of my feature films because today there is a lot of uh, self-censorship in Russia. Uh, the film industry is heavily dependent on the government. And uh, basically, 
if you want to, to make a studio picture, you have to go to the culture ministry and ask for money. There are uh, just a few exceptions. Uh, established director who doesn't, uh, who don't really have to uh, to do that. Who don't really have to uh, to ask uh, the government for funding. But uh, most other directors are kind of in a situation when they have to to be really careful about what they are showing in their films. If they if they uh, paint a picture of contemporary Russia that that's too dark, they may not be able to get funding for their subsequent films. So they are careful. And because I make uh, those ultra-low budget uh, guerrilla style uh, films uh, with almost no money, with no connection to the industry, I don't really have to, to care about it. I don't really, I don't really care if my films uh, uh, come come out as uh, too dark or depicting uh, depicting uh, Russia in some kind of a negative uh, light. Uh, I don't care about that. I try to uh, to capture real people, uh, real emotions. Uh, I try to uh, to talk about issues uh, that uh, people face in their daily life, like including uh, uh, including violence, uh, uh, police uh, brutality, some uh, some other things uh, that uh, would probably uh, would uh, probably be uh, considered uh, ideologically wrong. I have a, I have quite a grim view of uh, contemporary Russia. I think uh, that uh, uh, Russian society is sick, and uh, uh, the roots of it are in the Soviet past, which uh, hasn't uh, hasn't been properly processed and done away with. Uh, People are still contaminated with uh, those uh, sicknesses uh, they contracted uh, in the Soviet era, and uh, I, but at the same time they got some more sicknesses uh, from this uh, uh, this uh, capitalist uh, consumerist uh, society, and all that just adds uh, to. To their confusion, and that's something I try to uh, to talk about. And uh, of course, uh, of course, I'm not the only one who addresses uh, uh, those uh, issues. Uh, uh, but uh, uh, from what I can see, a lot of um, a lot of films uh, paint uh, some uh, uh, some kind of a watered down picture avoiding uh, some acute issues and uh, as i said because i don't work in the film industry uh i don't have all those restrictions and i try to uh to uh, to be open and honest about what i see around me without uh without really having to think about self-censorship and other issues of that kind what what do you mean by sickness? Well, it's uh, 
it's like um, maybe sickness is uh, uh, a too harsh word, but still people living in contemporary Russia, they are certainly disorientated. They don't know where to go because uh, uh, the, the state ideology is uh, totally bizarre. It, uh, it consists of, uh, of, say, Joseph Stalin, and uh, the the last uh, Russian emperor Nicholas uh, II basically uh, basically brought uh, together in one uh, one uh, single uh, bizarre ideological message. Uh, back in the in the early two thousands, uh, people were focused on consumerism uh, which was some kind of uh, uh, kind of religion and uh, I didn't uh, didn't really like uh, that uh, direction the society was taking but still it was uh, probably better uh, than all those uh, bizarre ideas about like imperial Russian ideas uh, that are uh, being uh, being uh, distributed uh, by state propaganda, and uh, people are really confused, especially especially young people, and that uh, that lack of uh, of some kind of moral guidance uh, or I don't know ideological guidance, it uh, it uh, results uh, in a society. Uh, consisting of uh, of people who are really directionless, who don't really know what uh, what they want to do, uh, where they could uh, where they could uh, go. If uh, the economy were good, uh, they could uh, focus on their careers and uh, all that consumerist stuff. But with the economy being not so great. Uh, they don't really know where to go. Yeah, there's kind of a, I mean, some people have described contemporary Russia as, you know, a, a kind of postmodernist experience where you have all of this mashing together of the past, of the present, all of these various contradictions of Russian society and Russian history standing next to each other. Do you have a similar view, and 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 more so? Do you, is this something you try to reflect in your stories? Uh, I think I can I can relate to to this uh, description. The only thing is that uh, I I don't really embrace uh, postmodernism as an artistic tool. I I prefer realism even probably hyper-realism, because I think it's uh, the, the most adequate tool uh, for telling stories I want to, uh, to tell in my films and in my books. But on the other hand, I can really understand uh, this uh, uh, as... Uh, a really bizarre mix of uh, ideas 
ideologies, messages, uh, cultures. And uh, if uh, that's just uh, another way to, to approach it, uh, there are authors uh, who have approached it in a post-modernist way, and uh, uh, they've uh, uh, they've come up with uh, with uh, really compelling uh, pictures of uh, of uh, contemporary Russia, but it's it's just uh, something uh, something that's not exactly my cup of tea. I prefer to explore the same uh, the same reality with uh, with different with a different set of tools with uh, uh, with more realist uh, tools. Although, of course, I understand that uh, there are many possible ways to to approach it. And uh, contemporary Russian society gives them quite a lot of uh, quite a lot of food uh, for those uh, uh, explorations and interpretations. And, and finally, so what's next for you? What are you working on now? What does the what does your future hold? I'm developing a film adaptation of my novel titled 1986, not to be confused with the short story 1987. Uh, this is a noir novel set in Belarus in, again, predictably, 1986. It is loosely based on a true story of investigating murders committed by a serial killer. Uh, at the time of writing the novel, which was about 10 years ago, I was very interested in film noir and hard-boiled fiction, and I played with conventions of that genre, setting the novel in Belarus of uh, 1986, which was uh, quite a dark time. And uh, as I said, I'm developing this uh, film with the Belarusian producers. And if everything, uh, if everything goes well, uh, then uh, uh, filming will be next year. This, uh, this spring, uh, we filmed a few scenes. We made a teaser for this film which my producers are now using to uh, to try to to get uh, this project funding. And also I'm finishing a new novel, which is titled uh, KGB Rock. It is set in Moscow in the early 1980s. It's focused on uh, KGB investigation into an alleged neo-Nazi group. And uh, there are also subplots that deal with the underground music scene of the time and uh, the Soviet dissident movement. So these are two uh, two projects uh, that I'm focusing on at the moment. That was Vladimir Kozlov, a novelist and filmmaker. He's written over a dozen fiction and nonfiction books and was the winner of the Made in Russia Award for Literature in 2013 and nominated for GQ Russia's Writer of the Year in 2011 and 2012. His most recent books translated into English are USSR, Diary of a Perestroika Kid, and 1987 and Other Stories. He's also the director of several films, 
including Traces in the Snow, a groundbreaking documentary about the influential Siberian punk rock movement of the 1980s. I've put links to Kozlov's YouTube channel on the podcast website so you can watch his films. I'm your host, Sean Guillory, and this is the SRB Podcast. The SRB Podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and listeners like you. If you enjoy this podcast and want to help support it, please take a moment to share it on Facebook and Twitter, like my Facebook page, Sean's Russia Blog, write a review, or recommend the show to your friends. The SRB podcast comes cheap, but it's not free to make. You can help support it by joining the table of ranks at seansrussiablog.org. Thanks to all my high excellencies, high wellborns, and noblenesses for your continued patronage. You can find past shows on iTunes and SoundCloud, or you can download them directly from seansrussiablog.org as well. Until next time, bye! Thank you.